Open your Bibles with me to 2 John. 2 John. Let's start reading in verse 6. And this is love, that we walk after His commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This morning, we've, we looked at philosophy. And remember what philosophy is. Philosophy is a love of wisdom. A philosopher is a lover of wisdom. But it is a love of wisdom that is not God's wisdom. It is a search for answers, maybe including my idea of God, but rejecting the biblical revelation of God. We looked at three particular characters this morning. We looked at Descartes, and Descartes wrote a book in 1637, A Discourse on Method. And in that book, he came up with the amazing revelation, I think, therefore I am. And that's just profound. And he had many other uh, interesting ideas that caused great damage to who we are. The second man that we looked at this morning is a man named Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes in 1651 wrote a book called Leviathan. And in Leviathan, he determined that man from the beginning is simply a man of desires. And so he equated human desires with human rights and he expected government to protect our uh, pursuit of those desires, calling them rights, and just devastated our understanding of morality. No right, no wrong, no God, um, just, just a horrible man. The third man that we looked at this morning was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He wrote um, several books. The one that most people are familiar with is his Social Contract, and it's a, it's a book on government. But one of the other books that uh, he wrote was, it was a discourse on, I can't remember the exact title, but having to do with the inequality of man. And the thing that led to the inequality of man was having owning property. And that led to inequality, and of course, that led to Marxism. He had so many other horrible ideas. That's what we looked at this morning, and we compared those thoughts to what the Bible says. Tonight, I want us to continue reading in our text. We have just described the, this, this kind of uh, thoughtless pursuit of knowledge, and it says this, verse 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus is Christ, or that confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Isn't that interesting? So this philosophy, it was, it was, it was uh, so enjoyable to hear your comments after this morning's message. How many people were interested in it? But what I really liked hearing were the young people coming to me and saying, hey, we studied that guy in school. We read about that in school but you guys probably didn't hear the same stuff that we talked about this morning. Uh, there's no moral equivalency at Grace Baptist Church. Amen. If, some, if somebody is an antichrist, we're going to call him an antichrist. And that's what we looked at this morning. So now, let's read on. Uh, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. So if you're not resting in Jesus Christ, come in the flesh, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, you have no hope. You can't be a Christian and believe those things. 
It's amazing. Um, again, uh, I was thinking of Chad Hollinger and the discussion that he's having with a, a gentleman on this subject. It's amazing that somebody would go to seminary for four years to learn how to not believe the Bible and to teach their people how not to believe the Bible. It's an amazing thing. It just, it, it's just so incongruous, it's hard to even comprehend. So, whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. For he that biddeth him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now, let's just throw a parenthesis in here for a minute. That's why I don't belong to the Ministerial Association. Right there. I just can't do it. I, you know, I can't go into a place where you've got so-called men of God who don't believe in the deity of Christ. They don't believe in the virgin birth. They don't believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. They're not my brothers. They're of their father, the devil. That's what the Bible says. And I'm not supposed to tell them, have a good day. Can you imagine? You meet one of these apostate preachers. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. All right. <laughs> hope you have a wreck. You know? oh, I, I hope God, I hope God does something to wake you up before you die because you're going to hell. Amazing. Verse 12, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. Amen. Amen. You know, it's interesting. You can have joy and stand for the truth. Isn't that interesting? He just absolutely guts false teachers. He said, hey, when we get together, we're going to have a good time. Didn't like good. It's just really interesting. Um, imagine, who's the, who's the pastor down at uh, St. Paul's down here? Pastor Wagner? Is that right? Is he still there? He retired. Okay. Um, he's an antichrist. Isn't that interesting? That's what the Bible says. Well, we hadn't been here very long, and he wrote an article in the paper, and the pastor speaks, denying the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine preaching a Jesus that was not virgin born? Didn't believe in his actual godness? Can, can you imagine? I remember reading that just, I don't know that I had seen anything in a newspaper like that from a preacher, you know, really proud of the fact that he didn't believe in the Lord. He's an antichrist. Look with me at uh, 3 John. 3 John. Let's read um, verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, 
receiveth us not. I just want you to know, we have a scripture that names names. Amen? Amen? Um, Verse 10. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds, which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath done good, uh, hath good report of all men and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record that you know that our record is true. So here's the idea. Stand for the truth. Stay away from evil teachers. Don't let them come into the church. And remember what happens if you have an evil leader rise up in the church, he will keep godly people from coming into it and exclude godly people from it. That happens all over the country right now. There is a movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, when you read Rick Warren's uh, method for changing a church into a modern church, you've got to get rid of the old people. And you do that, stop singing hymns, get rid of the King James Version of the Bible, and if they complain, make an example of one of them. We have to get the old people out of the church so that we can move the church into the new gen- next generation. Amen. We kind of like having you. Amen. Uh, we need their wisdom. Not that you're old. You know, that's not what I was saying at all. Let's move on from there. She said, she brought it up. All right, now. <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble. I'm going to need help walking out of the service again tonight. All right, so now we're supposed to be careful who we allowed to have in leadership. We're supposed to be sure and identify, make, just speak very plainly. This is truth. This is error. This man is godly. This man is ungodly. This man preaches the truth and needs to be prayed for. This man is an antichrist. It needs to be rejected. Don't even tell him Godspeed. Because when you do, you take part in his evil deeds. It's interesting. Jude. Jude, the next book. Verse 3. We looked at this passage last Sunday night. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look, that's the world that we live in. That's the modern mind. That's the modern age. These men have been around for a long time. So in this idea, my message tonight is how to raise a postmodern child. We looked at the modern mind this morning. I want to speak this evening on how to raise a postmodern child. But before we get to that, we have to define what is postmodernism. Well, before we can define postmodernism, we have to define modernism. What is modernism? Modernism isn't really that modern anymore. It happened in the mid-1800s, mid to late 1800s. It took over. It swept Europe 
before the beginning of the 20th century. It swept Europe. It didn't really come to America in full force until after World War I. The soldiers came back from World War I, and many of them had bought books and had been influenced by the people in Germany. Many of the, of the young men in America were traveling to Germany to go to seminaries and study, and they were trained in what is called German higher criticism, and they brought that back to the United States. I want to give you one example of what happened in America. This book is called Banquet at Delmonico's, Great Minds and the Gilded Age and the Triumph of Evolution in America. Um, Delmonico's is one of the oldest restaurants in America. You can still go there in New York City. Um, great Minds in the Gilded Age. You have the Golden Age. The late 1800s in America was called the Gilded Age because it wasn't really golden. It was just kind of had, had a little gold veneer to it. Um, and so this is about a banquet that was held in honor of Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was a naturalist who coined the term survival of the fittest. How many of you have ever heard survival of the fittest? That's Herbert Spencer. Herbert Spencer was a great hero to um, Andrew Carnegie, the iron magnate. And uh, they, they believed in what's called social Darwinism. And this is Herbert Spencer is the man who introduced all of the, that uh, concept to America. Well, Herbert Spencer had an evangelist here in America that uh, his name was Edward Livingston Yeomans. And Yeomans traveled America ginning up support for Darwinism, for evolution. His uh, Darwin's mouthpiece in England was Thomas Huxley. Somebody tell me what Thomas Huxley's nickname was. I know some of y'all know it. Darwin's Bulldog. Remember that? Thomas Huxley. Famous, uh, think grandchildren, children or grandchildren. His one son was Aldous Huxley and the other son, Julian Huxley. Remember Brave New World? Interesting uh, bit of history. Um, just a, a coincidence of history, or maybe God just planned it this way. Uh, three men died on the same day. John F. Kennedy, C.S. Lewis, and Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. And it's interesting. Um, three men that, that influenced the 20th century as much as any other men. But anyway, Thomas Huxley was Darwin's bulldog. Yeomans was Spencer and Darwin's mouthpiece here in the United States. And what he would do is he would travel and he would gather preachers together and meet with them. So Yeomans wrote him a letter, wrote uh, Spencer a letter. 10,000 Descent of Man have been printed, and I guess they are nearly all gone. Descent of Man was uh, Charles Darwin's very destructive book, saying that man descended from the apes. All right? They've been printed, and I guess they are all gone. The progress of liberal thought is remarkable. Everyone is asking for explanations. What's so interesting is all those explanations people are excited about have all been proven to be wrong, even by scientists, you know, even by Scientists that don't believe in God. So apparently science didn't that do that great, right? So we're talking about what is modernism and how did it affect us. The clergy are all in a flutter. Makash told them not to worry, as whatever might be discovered, he would find design in it and put God behind it. Makash was the head of the College of New Jersey, Princeton. Princeton Theological Seminary. 
So don't worry. Whatever scientific discoveries they have, I'll just find a way to say that God did it. All right? Great defender of the faith. 25 clergymen in Brooklyn sent for me to meet them on a Saturday night and tell them what they should do to be saved. I told them they would find the way of life in biology and in the descent of man. They said, very good, and asked me to come again at the next meeting of the clerical club, to which I went and was again handsomely resoluted. (laughs) This is 1894. Okay? This is modernism coming to America. The idea of modernism was it was rationalistic. It's that we have to be able to see it and investigate it and prove it in order for it to be true. That idea goes all the way back to a man named Simon, a Roman Catholic uh, scholar, Roman Catholic theologian in the 1600s. He was the father of this idea of textual criticism. Just, just we, we must examine the text to see whether or not they're genuine and really not believe what they say. A guy named Simon back in the 1600s. It comes all the way down. You have scientists fighting against God. You have theologians fighting against God. Then you have pastors believing what they say and rejecting the truth of the Word of God. How many of you see that's a mess? It's a mess. Now, praise God, there were a lot of preachers standing for the truth also. Amen? Remember the Scopes Monkey Trial? How many of you ever heard of that? Go to Dayton, Tennessee. You can still see the courthouse where it took place. That's where you have William Jennings Bryan defending the right. And you have, um, what was his name? Clarence Darrow going against the truth. Now, what most people don't know because they've seen the movie. How many of you saw the movie Inherit the Wind? Spencer Tracy. Spencer Tracy was a wicked, wicked man. ACLU. um, He believed in eugenics, Planned Parenthood. A wicked, horrible, wicked man. A lot of those people were Gregory Peck. He was the same way. Um, Burt Lancaster, Catherine Hepburn, wicked, wicked people that believed in eugenics. Remember what eugenics is. Eugenics means that we're going to kill uh, like, like black people. We want to we abort as many of their babies as possible because they're an undesirable race. Great people. Really good, really good people. So when you watch that movie, Inherit the Wind, remember that that is the wrong side of the story. William Jennings Bryan won the court battle. He was made a mockery and he died the next day. But because of the the popular opinion in the press. But that's where the idea of the monkey man came from. And that's where Christians were made to be buffoons for believing in creation. And that was 1925. So between the late 1800s and the early 1900s, there's a great shift and a great battle for the hearts of Christianity within the church houses, let alone the schools, let alone the universities. In the churches, there was a great battle for the heart and minds of men. And it all went back to what do we believe about the Word of God? This is a book. It's called The Man Who Found Time, uh, James Hutton and and the Discovery of Earth's Antiquity. It's a really interesting little book. He's a man that went to Jedburgh, Scotland. I've actually preached in Jedburgh, Scotland. He, He sat by the river. And as he sat by the river looking at it, he saw there were different layers in the rock formations. And so he determined by that that each of those layers of rock would be an age. And so this is the guy that discovered billions of years. That's why they call him the man that found time. 
Why did he find time? Because he was trying to find a way to explain the creation apart from God. He came from a religious family. He rejected the concept of God. And so he wanted to figure out a way for the earth to be here apart from God. James Hutton. Hutton influenced Darwin. Darwin influenced Spencer. Spencer influenced the United States of America in a great way. And Yeomans, his disciple, came, his his evangelist came and influenced the churches here in America. That's modernism. The pastors were fighting against modernism, whether it was in the churches or in the seminaries or in the schools. But don't miss this. Please don't miss this. All of the seminaries fell. You hear what I'm saying? All of them. So what happened was a group of people came together and they established Bible colleges. Um, Bob Jones College was started in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, Then Bob Jones moved to Greenville, South Carolina, and Tennessee Temple College was started in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, uh, Charles Fuller. How many of you remember the old-time revival hour? Anybody ever listen to old-time? Charles Fuller. Charles Fuller started Fuller Theological Seminary in California. And there was a statement of faith that they had to sign if they were going to be a staff member or a professor there that they believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, We showed you this morning um, Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias could not have signed that. All right? So Charles Fuller, he required uh, uh, that statement of faith. There's a book called The Battle for the Bible by Harold Linzel that tells the story of Fuller Theological Seminary. Fuller fell very quickly, very quickly. As soon as Fuller died, his son David Fuller took over and removed the clause on the inerrancy of Scripture from the requirements for the staff. So as soon as that happened, then anything goes. J.I., not J.I. Packer, but Gleason Archer, famous uh, uh, scholar, Bible scholar, he went on staff there and he joined the liberal presbytery of Los Angeles so that he could infiltrate them and try and have an influence. How did he do? (laughs) Not well. That's what happened in Christianity. That's modernism. Modernism is the idea that truth does exist, but it can only be discovered through the mind, through the scientific process, through observation. That removes all the concepts of metaphysics. Anything that's outside of the physical cannot be proved, so it must not be real. That is the modern mind. That influenced Christianity. It influenced pastors. 1925, um, Harry Emerson Fosdick preaches his famous message, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And the concept of that was that you don't have to believe in the deity of Christ or the virgin birth to be a good Christian. That was the basis of that sermon. That's what happened in America. That was the fight of modernism. You know that that fight is over? And one of the problems that we have is many Christians in their apologetic. Apologetics is not saying you're sorry. It's it's defending the scriptures in our defense of christianity one of the big problems that we have as believers is so many people are still thinking on them on that they're fighting the modernists but how many of you have been in a debate recently you're just you're discussing the truth with someone and you 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 know that they they make a statement um i don't believe in absolute truth and you you know i got them are you absolutely sure of that and you say you're, you know, you're going to get through to them, and they go, oh, whatever. You know, I, I just, that, that's just not right for me. Where do you go from there? How do you engage someone who doesn't care? This is the culture that we live in. 
our school teachers, all of you school teachers that are here, I know this is what you look at all day long. Am I right? Seriously. Am I right? No, it's funny. I, I looked at one of my yearbooks a while back from my senior year of high school. You know what I looked like? <laughs> my dad, he would have, he, my dad would not have liked that at all. That would have been a problem. Now, here's the deal. What has happened? We have so, our culture, now we haven't. You parents, you love God. You love your kids. You're doing everything that you know to do that's right to raise godly children. Amen? But our culture has so infused itself into our children that now we have a problem. So let's give the definition of modernism. The definition of modernism is the belief that truth exists, but only in the rational world. And the only way to find truth was through the scientific method. So go to 1 Timothy 6 with me. 1 Timothy 6. And look at verse 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. The Bible deals with every one of our problems. Amen? So, here in The Man That Found Time, here he says, this is towards the beginning of the book, one of the few mysteries not resolved explicitly in the Bible was the age of the universe. But learned scribes teasing information from the Holy Scriptures and paying close attention to the Hebrew prophecies had stepped in to supply the answer. They calculated that creation had occurred not quite 6,000 years ago. And the people said, Amen. Amen. Yet, the reverence accorded to biblical answers caused problems the most serious being that it prevented rigorous and systematic examination of the very world that God had created. Now, is that true? No. All of the early scientists, they might not have been our kind of Christian, but they were theists. They believed in God. They believed that he had a son, Jesus Christ, who had created the world, was a God of order. And it is the job of the scientist to understand, to explore, and then explain that order. That's where Isaac Newton came up with the idea of gravity. He believed in God's order and he sought to discover it. You can go to the British Museum right now and see a commentary that, I, that uh, Isaac Newton wrote on the book of Isaiah. And he believed in the rapture of the church. Isn't that interesting? Great scientist. So this is not a true statement. So it says this then. Scholars who investigated fields that did not touch on church doctrine were relatively unaffected. But those who explored the natural world were playing with fire, the figurative fire of controversy and the real fire of the heretic's pyre, and the eternal fire of damnation if the church felt they had stepped too far. It required genuine bravery even to venture into these issues. It required hard to, hard to imagine resolve to promote a position that conflicted with church teachings. What church do you think they're talking about? Baptists didn't go and burn somebody for studying science. But what happened was when the chains, after the Reformation took place, the Enlightenment and the Reformation, the chains of the Church of England were removed from the scientist. He could now examine the world without the lenses or without the restrictions of biblical truth. And that led to where we are now. 
That is modernism. And the church was influenced by science, falsely so-called. Remember, science is knowledge. Amen? And it must agree with reality, and they did not agree with reality, so they were wrong. So that was modernism. What's postmodernism? Well, it comes after modernism, and we live in the postmodern age. Now, probably a better way for you to understand it is post-Christian. Post-Christian. So let me give you a definition for postmodernism. Well, that gives us a problem. It's very difficult to define because it shuns definitions. It's marked by a tendency to dismiss the possibility of any sure and settled knowledge of the truth. So the postmodernist doesn't really care a whole lot about the truth, and they don't believe that you can really have a settled truth. And that's where the idea is you have your truth and I have my truth. That's the postmodern world. Um, I think it was Andrea, the, Andrea Smith that was telling me that when she taught at Dayton Christian School, 95% of the children, that, the young people that she spoke to, didn't believe that homosexuality was wrong. What happened? How, how does that happen? Is it because they come from bad churches? Is it because they have bad teachers or bad parents? Where does that come from? I wonder if you've spoken to your children about those issues. If you've had actual conversations with your children about these issues, you need to. You need to have those conversations. You need to know where your children stand on those things. And don't let them give you this. I don't know. Don't let that happen. All right, then. So that's postmodernism. Postmodernism suggests that if objective truth exists, it cannot be known objectively with any degree of certainty. And here's where we are. Tell me if this rings true. The thoughtful person will never speak with too much conviction about anything. The thoughtful person will never speak with too much conviction about anything. Man, when you watch... It, this, this election is very interesting. There's a great upsurge, a grassroots upsurge in uh, conservative thought, right? How much have you heard about abortion, gay marriage in this election? Almost nothing. So praise God, we've got the opportunity to get our people in through the, the wallet of the independents. G.K. Chesterton was a... Roman Catholic uh, humorist commentator. He wrote the Father Dowling, uh, the, the Father uh, Brown mysteries, which became Father Dowling mysteries on television. He lived in the 1920s and 30s, is when he was writing. And a great political satirist. And uh, he said, an independent is one who believes in nothing. It's good, isn't it? It's good. The independent is the one who just waits. Who are you going to vote for? Can you imagine there are people still undecided? Those are the independents. And the reason that all of these television ads run, they're not to change you. They're not to change me. They're to change the independents, the people who really have no core. And they're just going to be nudged to wherever it is that, that the, the, the culture takes them. But we have an opportunity to get our foot in the door and accomplish some social things but I'll tell you what, man, as soon as, our, as soon as conservative people try to make an impact in our nation on social issues, man, the fangs are going to come out. You're kooks. You're crazy. I remember when uh, Buchanan, Pat Buchanan, 
what year was it? Like 92 or 94 or something like that? He gave his speech at the Republican convention. How many of you remember that? And he talked about homosexuality being wrong. You would have thought he was Charles Manson. I'm serious. You would have, you would have thought he was Michael Jackson. Oh, wait a minute. They like him. That's when people would ask me what I thought about Michael Vick with the dogs. They'd say, well, at least he's not Michael Jackson. And people never knew what, you know, it was so funny. You'd watch them. They, they're going like this. What, what, what does that mean? <laughs> Don't kill dogs, but mess with little boys, you know, either. It's a weird culture. Um, so Pat Buchanan, he makes this speech and they come out against him with knives, man. Why? Because you're not allowed to hold any opinions too strenuously. You've got to be pliable and malleable. All right, so that's where we are. But what is Christ's answer to postmodernism? Look at 2 Timothy 2.13. Don't worry, we're getting to the kids here in a second. We're getting to the kids here in a second. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. So much for Descartes. So much for the postmodern mind. You might deny him, but he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Why? Because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of the ages, the God of the universe. Jesus Christ is truth. He's the answer to the problem of postmodernism. So, that being said, now we've, we have described our culture and where we are, the influences of philosophy, the influence of science falsely so-called. We're supposed to beware of philosophy, Colossians 2.8. Not beware of false philosophy, beware of philosophy. Defend the scriptures. All right, so now we live in a postmodern world. Now, let me, we've got to stop. Let's qualify something. Um... We do not want to raise postmodern children. Amen? We want to raise biblically-minded children who know the truth, they can stand for the truth, they can earnestly contend for the faith. Amen? They understand how to fight for the truth, to care about it. We don't want to be like those in Laodicea who have need of nothing. They are increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that they're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We don't want to be like that. But how do you raise a postmodern child? First of all, allow him to think the world revolves around him. I think, therefore I am. I determine my own truth. I determine my own reality. When you allow the child to do that, you say to him, you think, therefore I am. Do you realize how many children think their parents exist for them? That's why I love it. When we leave on vacation, we say to the kids, okay, guys, you need to understand something. This isn't your vacation. This is mom and my vacation. You guys get to come with us. You don't need a vacation because you don't do anything. <laughs> this is our vacation. If you behave, you'll have a great time. If you ask me for something, you're going to get nothing. If you don't ask me for anything, you'll get lots of good stuff. Because I like to have fun and I love you. But this is not your vacation. This is not about you. This is about us. Is that the conversation we have? <laughs> yeah. 
And what's so funny is, I'm sure there's some very tender-hearted people out there going, oh, you're just going to damage their little psyches. I'll do this. Uh, and, and now the kids go, whatever. But when they were little, I'd walk up to Laura and I'd hug her and I'd look at Lydia and I'd say, she was mine first. And Lydia used to go, she was evil. Jacob, Jacob didn't like it at all. Jacob's very possessive of his mother, still is. He doesn't like that at all. She was mine first. Laura would say, he was mine first. What are we saying? I want those kids to know that she is always going to come before them. Amen? That is so important. I wonder if your kids know that. Or are they the center of the world? You want to ruin a kid, make them the center of the universe. You know what that is? That's Descartes' philosophy. That's you allowing Descartes to influence your children. That's how you become. That's how you raise a postmodern child. The absolute standards of obedience are malleable to my opinion. Now, remember what obedience is. Obedience. When I ask one of my children to do something, the immediate obedience in the right attitude is the only acceptable response. Why is that? Because God demands obedience of me. God demands obedience of us as children. Amen. And so if I am going to demonstrate that obedience to Jacob and to Lydia, I must require that same immediate obedience from them. But here's how I raise a postmodern child. When I allow them to do nothing until I tell them three or four or five times, and then I raise my voice and they go ahead and do it, and I'm so proud of myself because I have children that obey. What have I done? I have redefined obedience to my own opinion of it. Now, the problem is that opinion does not go along with reality, with God's reality. So what am I doing? I'm raising a child to believe that standards and obedience is whatever I choose to make it because I am the king of my own domain and I bow to no one but my own mind and my own will. That's how to raise a postmodern child. God has defined what obedience is. We don't get to define it. How to raise a postmodern child, allow him to believe the world revolves around him. Next, convince yourself that his rebellious behavior is just the strong will with which he was born. My child won't obey. He's just, he's a good boy. He's just a strong-willed boy. She's a good girl. She's just a strong-willed girl. And you know what? She's always been like that. When I'd try to change her diaper, she'd fight me all along the way. And she's still that way. Isn't that something? And I can't do a thing about it. That's Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes believed that man's rights are the same things as his desires, and he ought to be able to do whatever it is that he's inclined to do. So, 
Here are some of the things that we will say if we agree with Thomas Hobbes and want to raise a postmodern child. He has a hard time obeying because he has so much energy. He's just busy. He's a busy child. Better stop. I'm going to give you a time out. Here's another one. He can't follow instructions because he's so creative. He just has his own way of seeing things. Remember how God described Israel? There was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Do you know why your child does what's right in his own eyes? There's no king in the house. Oh, yeah, he is. He's the center of the world. King of his domain. How about this? Anyone ever, you ever heard anyone say this? Just wait until they turn 13. It's like someone took over their body. They just won't listen to me anymore. Oh, well, I guess everyone experiences this. Well, neurologists tell us that there's a chemical reaction in the brain that takes place right around age 13, and they just don't know how to process information anymore. That's how to raise a postmodern child. Now, let me ask you something. Seriously, am I making this up? Am I making it up? I'm just telling you, my dad had a cure for the neurolo- neuronic synapses. <laughs> and it hurt. How about this? You ready? Ready for another? How many of it's already, how many, honestly, it's already a little too painful. Did you raise your hand? Anybody in here? Ready? How to raise a postmodern child. 19-year-olds are supposed to get drunk and fool around with the opposite sex in in college. They're supposed to do that. They're just spreading their wings. (laughs) How about this one? You ready? Are you ready? Sometimes you just have to let them go and trust God. Really? Hmm. All of that is true if you believe Thomas Hobbes. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may be well with you, with thee. And your days may be long upon the earth. That's what the Bible says. How about John Locke? Didn't get to talk about him a whole lot this morning. Hmm. John Locke believed in the correspondence theory of truth. That is that truth is that which corresponds to reality. No, that's true. Truth does correspond with reality. Does that make sense? But what he, he took it to the next step. That only that which may be observed is real. You have to be able to see it in order for it to be real. Um, and then science pursues the real. Then he, how many of you ever heard of this? The tabula rosa. How many of you ever heard of that? 
the blank slate. That is the idea that when a child is born, he has no innate knowledge. No innate knowledge. And so he's just this blank slate. And then he gains all truth, not through knowledge, not through thinking, but through experience, through his senses. And so we must train our children. We will train our children based on their senses. And where that ends up in the public school is we change the class from history to social studies. Instead of learning facts, it's how to fit into society. You see? It affects our knowledge. Um, We have no innate knowledge. We are born knowing nothing and are constantly learning through our senses. That is John Locke's contribution to our children. So... If we're going to raise our children to be postmodern children, and we're going to be influenced by John, by John Locke, then expect nothing of your children until they're at least teenagers. Expect nothing of them. Why? Because they're just learning. They're just experiencing life. Isn't that interesting? Don't expect your children to read and memorize Scripture and know God because they're not capable of it. Oh, they're just babies. He's just a baby. Oh, it's just a little boy. You can't expect him to behave any better than that. Hmm. Um, How about this? Locke only believed in the material. So if you want to raise a postmodern child, focus only on the material or visible in your child's life. Here's going to be your priorities in your child's your priority. These are your priorities in your child's life. If you want to raise a postmodern child, grades, sports, and appearance are your most important things. Why? Because you gotta get a job. So, what you will do then is you will focus on the material or visible, and you'll neglect the spiritual. Because it's the things that are seen and tangible which are the most important. You're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. All that church stuff. So, you'll neglect Awana. No reason for them to be at Awana if they're sports. And they have to, they have to memorize so much stuff for school. Boy, when we give them the verses, it's just too much. Sunday school, why do they need that? They have other stuff they're doing. Teen activities, can't have teen activities because we've got to have the prom and you've got to have the dance and you've got to have band and you've got to have all the... They're so busy, they don't need something else to do. We have lives, you know. Youth camp, well, I don't want to make them go. Church services, preaching. It's amazing how many young people are here for the Sunday morning service, but not here for the Wednesday night Bible club, not here for Sunday night preaching. They're just, they're just not here. Revival services. Well, they have school, you know. Sometimes that preaching just goes too long. That's how to raise a postmodern child. How about this? Remember Rousseau? Rousseau believed that when man came into being, he was free. (laughs) 
He, he didn't need anything. He didn't need a house, didn't need property, didn't need prepared food. He ate apples and nuts. Just everything was great. If he needed something, he just took it. No, nothing belonged to anybody. We were just free. That's Rousseau. Bless his pea-picking heart. So if you want to raise a postmodern child, according to Rousseau, if you impose your standards of behavior on him, he'll turn away from God later. Well, I don't want to make him go to church. My parents made me go to church, and I hated it. Well, then don't make him go to school. Don't make him take a bath. Don't make him wash behind his ears. Don't make him eat his vegetables. Don't make him wear a coat. Because you know what will happen? He'll grow up and he won't wear coats anymore. He'll refuse coats. He's going to be an anti-coat person for the rest of his life. And certainly don't do potty training. You know, I just believe that most kids potty train themselves. They'll do it when they're ready. Am I making it up? Am I making it up? If it was only outside the four walls of Grace Baptist Church, it would be bad enough. Now, here's the deal. I remember hearing all of these from people in the church, but I don't remember who said what. So don't get mad at me. Oh, I wasn't supposed to say it was from you guys. Oops. Oh, man. Rousseau believed man learned entirely through his senses. He got that concept from John Locke. And so we say, I don't want to break his spirit. How about this? Here's another way to raise a postmodern child using Rousseau's thinking. Always take your child's side against authority. Any of you teachers ever experienced this? Well, I'm just telling you, Johnny wouldn't do that. He would never lie. Have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? Anyway, I said I wasn't going to get like that. All right. Rousseau, here's a, this is a quote about Rousseau. As civil society is based on injustice and law is merely a tool for the rich to keep their riches, then rebellion of the have-nots is always justified. They have nothing to lose but their chains. Voila, the French Revolution and the Communist Manifesto. So always take your child's side against authority. That's the way to raise a postmodern child. Then, for Rousseau, leave the spiritual education of your children to others. Desert them to the wisdom of the world. Well, I took them to church. Children go away from God. I took them to church. Anybody ever heard that? Seriously, anybody ever heard that? Here's what Rousseau said about his own children. This is his own writing. I made up my mind cheerfully and without the least scruples, and the only ones I had to overcome were those of Therese. I had the greatest difficulty in the world getting her to accept this means of preserving her honor. Her mother, who feared the inconvenience of a brat, came to my aid, and she allowed herself to be overcome. A discreet and trustworthy midwife was chosen, and when Teresa's time came, she was taken there by her mother for the birth. He, the baby, 
was then deposited by the midwife at the Enfants Truves office, the orphanage, in the way that was customary. The following year, there came the same inconvenience and the same expedience. I didn't reflect any further, and the mother didn't approve any more fully. She groaned, but obeyed. Just left them. And so many Christian parents, they make sure their grades are good. They make sure their clothes are nice. They make sure that their diet is cared for. And they spend no time at all on the spiritual education of their children. And they raise postmodern kids who care nothing about the things of God. They give equal weight to the skepticism that they are taught and the Bible stories they hear in Sunday school. Equal weight. Equal weight. Because their parents think, well, I take them to church. I take them to Awana. And they spend no time discussing these issues with their kids. Finding out, what do you believe about the Word of God? What do you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you believe about these social issues? What about these kids that are getting their faces pierced? What about your friends who are getting their bodies all painted up? What do you think God thinks about that? What do you think God thinks about that? What do you think God thinks about you changing and and looking like the world? What do you think God thinks about you looking like a grunge rocker? Or I don't even know what the terms are anymore. What do you think, the, what do you think God thinks about you looking like a hip-hop star? What do you think God thinks about these things? Does God even have an opinion? We need to discuss these things with our children. Or they are going to leave. Uh, Ken Ham wrote his book, Already Gone. I think I referenced it last week. You ought to get it and read it. 85% of young people that are raised... In Christian homes, conservative Christian homes, 85% of them have lost their faith by sixth grade. By the time they get to college, they're gone. 85% of them. 85%. Why? It wasn't important. There's no passion. There's no care. Why? Because we as parents have one foot in the Word of God and in the church and one foot in the world. And we care just as much about what the world thinks about us, what the school, what the coach, what the, the, the co-worker. We care just as much about their opinion as we do about what God says. And there's an old saying, and it's true. Whatever we do in moderation, our children will do in excess. It's just true. So here's the deal. If we are sold out for God, and our children understand that we're sold out for God, we teach them to know the truth, to discern the truth. We speak with them. We interact. We ask questions. We find out what they're thinking. We don't get them to regurgitate things back to us. We get them thinking about it and we discuss these things and we teach them right and wrong. We teach them what God thinks about things. We demonstrate our love for them and our disfavor, our our refusal to allow any kind, the least amount of rebellion. You'll break their will. No, you won't break their will. They'll have a will conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
They'll know what they believe and why they believe it. They'll be able to defend their faith because we're giving them answers. We're asking them questions. We're interacting with them on the Scriptures and on these issues of eternal importance. These things are so vitally important. I was just having a discussion with somebody today. We do the homeschool thing, and there's a, there's a section in the homeschool thing in the health section on um, the relation between man and a woman. And they're supposed to interact with their classmates about this information, interact with their teacher about this information online. I'm just telling you, there's not a stinking chance in the world my kids are doing that. That's between them and me and their mother. That's it. The school can take a hike. I don't care what they think. And if they want to mess with my kids' grades on that, I'll take it to Congress, I'll take it to the Supreme Court, and if they have to lose their grades, I'm still not going to allow the world to interact with my children on things where it's between God and me and them and God's Word. I don't care what the world thinks about those things. I do not care. And I know there are people that are thinking, well, I work with kids. I see what happens with kids when, when parents don't tell them. And they're going to learn it in the locker room anyway. They might as well learn it from their teacher. No, they should learn it from their godly parents. And when it comes up in the locker room, they should say, wait a minute. We don't talk about that stuff. Go talk about that somewhere else. I'm not going to talk about that with you. I love God. We've got to teach our children how to stand on these things. We need not to succumb to the spirit of the age. And you teachers, if that stuff starts coming into your schools, I don't know what's there now. If that's in your school, fight against it. Stand against it. Bring the parents in. Let them know what's in it. You know, you understand that much of that material, when it's taught, the parents aren't even allowed to show the kids the the material. That's how they get it in. You teachers, stand against it. Fight against it. If it's not in your class, find out if it's in your school and get your children, get the other parents and say, no, we've had enough. We don't need any postmodern children. We need to stand. We need to understand what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a godly parent in this wicked age. We live in a world that wants to destroy your kids. Satan wants to chew your kids up and spit them out. And we just hand them over. Praise God. I know there are people in this room, you love your kids far more than I do. And you are standing already. But all of us need to be reminded that Satan's plan, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the lust of the eyes, Lust of the flesh, pride of life. The entire world system is against your kids. They need more than an hour of church a week. They need more than a wanna. They need you to know God and love God and get them grounded in the Word of God and make God's house more important than any sporting event, more important than any school activity, more important than any cultural activity, more important than some dance. We've got to get to the place where this has the priority in our life and the local church has the priority in our life. You say, well, you're just a preacher. You just want more people here. You think I need something else to do? No. If we're going to fight the spirit of this age, we need time. We need opportunity for influence. And I promise you, 
If you're here, we'll have something for you and your family. We will make sure that there's something good. Praise God for all of you workers, you Sunday school teachers, you Awana leaders. Praise God for you, your love and your passion, your hard work, your devotion. Don't be weary in well-doing. Keep going. It's worth it. Man, when these young people come up to me and say, hey, I heard about that in school, and they're applying what they've learned here to what they learned in school, and they understand that this overrides whatever the history book says, whatever the world says about somebody. I'm just telling you, there's nothing better. Look at Third John. Third John. And verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Can I ask you a question? I'm done. This is it. We're done. Parents, everyone of your parents, please look at me. I want you to ask yourself an honest question. Is that your greatest joy? Think about it. Examine your heart. Examine your mind. Is your greatest joy that your children walk in truth? Well, if that's the case, then you all need to do something right now. I know some of you might be thinking it's too late. Man, it's not too late. It's not too late. God knows where you've been, where you're going. If you have grown children, God can still do an amazing work in your grown children's lives as you continue to align yourself with the Word of God and be a godly influence. Amen? But those of you who have small children, wee ones, thinking of little Lincoln, you have the little ones. We had lunch with little Caleb uh, Divins today. The older Divins, are, they're gone. You can't do anything with them. But Caleb... <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> you have young people. I think of all these, these young ones right up here. Linus, yeah. All these. It is all these. Your parents, you parents. In order for your children to walk in truth as adults, you know, we have Brent and Wade here. Their parents are here. Uh, Kent and Ty are here. Their parents are here. Um, Nathan is here. His mom's here. Any other grown folks, your parents are here with you that I'm missing? Stacy and Joni and Harry. Um, uh, uh, Kennedy's, their mom. This, that's what it's about. That's what it's about. So if I want... Jacob and Lydia to be walking in truth when they're Ty's age. 40? <laughs> 34. Okay, I'm sorry. You just look. No. Um, so if I want Jacob and Lydia to be walking with the Lord like Ty and Diana are, well, then that's got to become my greatest joy now. 
I want them to love God and know God and walk in truth at 12 and 13 so that they're doing it at 34. So again, let me ask you parents this question. How many of your parents? Would you raise your hand? How many of your parents? All right, put your hands down. Don't raise your hands on this. Is your greatest joy that your children walk in truth? I think maybe tonight we have some parents that need to get their priorities in order. Lord, I know that I allow so many things